Crowdsource Tribune presents in association with Crowdsourced Politics. This is Cypher State. So everybody, hey, welcome again to another sighting episode of the Crowdsource Politics presenting Cypher State. Cypher State is a foreign affairs and foreign policy focused podcast where we talk about uh, a particular issue facing the geopolitical stage currently. We are joined today by Tiberius D. Hello. And North Countryman. Sure thing. Uh, <laughs> here's, here's something. I just figured out how these headphones can work. So now I can actually hear you guys. Like, awesome. Literally, literally one second before you just asked me to say something. Let's go ahead and kind of get into the, the weeds about what we're talking about today and why we're talking about it. So to give you all just a little bit of background, um, I am actually fairly interested in Latin American politics from a geopolitical lens, uh, specifically because they're right in our backyard. And I felt that, you know, outside of like super academic kind of podcast, like the red line for my for my friend over at the red line in, in australia and like you know the new york daily and stuff like that not a lot of people have been covering it um fairly well i would say i think a lot of people put their own personal politics in regards to like how they see american foreign relations with other countries or you know what they wish that a domestic politics would look like and they use that to like look at what is going on in latin america and so what I'd like to do, what I hope this podcast does, what I hope this episode does, is that we kind of break it down a little bit more and get beyond the whole political ideological lens and actually talk about why these things are happening, who's at fault, and maybe what we can do about it. Um, so I think it was North Countryman said that he's got a bit of the history. Tiberius, do you have a bit of the his historical knowledge about this as well? Do you want to, like, who do, which one of you would like to start first on that bit? I can let North go, but I've got a plenty that I can definitely add as far as a history uh, component to this. I think maybe I'll do a, I'll do a brief overview and Tiberius sure. can jump in with specifics. I think that'll probably work best. That sounds great to me. Just for Latin America in general, obviously most of, without going into the weeds of the history, most of it, if we remember from our, from our history was colonized by Spain and Spain and Portugal. Then just gradually over time, they started gaining independence however unlike in the united states where they had where we had just kind of one revolution then went to a democratic republic a lot of latin american countries would have maybe a popular uprising but that would maybe be crushed then that would be followed by maybe a slightly more successful uprising getting a few reforms and quite often you'd have a military general would actually stage a coup you know with the backing of those that popular reformers within the public, excuse me. Unfortunately, a lot of those countries would then have military dictatorships for a long period of time. Mexico is a very good illustration of this. You know, even if it's not like officially a dictatorship, it's oftentimes they'll just rotate back and forth between the same few people. And as a result, with people in power who are not really focused on serving the people or getting reelected, they end up focusing on serving themselves. And if there's a drug trade, which 
oftentimes there is drug trades are like weeds they're well pun not intended <laughs> they're just they just pop up a lot and the money involved becomes very very enticing to politicians who are or to dictators who are in power and for bureaucrats who are actually aren't paid that much or have a hard time putting food on the table for their family they succumb to this and you end up with a narco state which is that term because the money and influence of drug trafficking infiltrates the political institutions of a lot of these states and really undermines what we would consider their legitimacy right and and with with that um would you say that um it's it's because of the instability primarily within the countries that's uh, like in your estimation that's causing this or is there like some sort of deeper uh, i don't know uh issue with it that's causing causing the the existence of the narco state i would say the institution creates the cracks that allows it to infiltrate because otherwise there's not really an alternative like an alternative okay well where am i going to get get the money to feed my family well, I'm not getting it from my job. I'm not getting it from, say, economic development. Oh, well, there's a drug trade that's making a lot of money. As, sure. So they'll potentially go with that. Now, now that was a that was a very very broad overview. So, so Tiberius, yeah. what what when would you say that we should actually like start the look at this problem? Would you like what what time period? Are we talking about here 1500s uh, all the way yes, back to the conquistadors yes literally back to the conquistadors okay so i've got two major assertions i'm going to put forward for this episode of why central america or you know latin america overall kind of sucks compared to what we see in, in north america one of them is going to be geographic i'll get to that later in the episode but today i want to hit or right now i want to hit in particular the historical part and i want to give you the context here 1500s, you've got Cortez and company coming through, right? And you've got the Aztecs, you've got the Mayas, which are like literally on their way out, and you've got the Incas here. But in North America, you've got like the Mississippian cultures, and they're far, far less, or I'm sorry, far less populated, they're far sparse. And uh, they're during this time, they're actually going to be hit by the Ameripox, as it's referred to, as basically all these diseases that are brought over by the conquistadors, they'll be largely wiped out by. Uh, some data actually indicates that almost 90% of them are wiped out. When, when the conquistadors come into Central America, though, is that they have a societies and institutions that they kind of find familiar. They're actually very feudalistic by their nature. And what does Cortez actually do to conquer the Aztec Empire? He does something that Europeans have done for uh, about 400 years at this point, which is comes in, kills Montezuma, which is the emperor, basically usurps the entire establishment of what we now call Mexico into a new empire, which will eventually be the mainstream part of New Spain and the Spanish Empire. So one of my core contentions here, and one of my core issues is, is, is that the formational process of what Latin America goes through is significantly different than what we see in North America. North America is largely what we would call an outright colonial state, where people flood in from the old world, and they build the institutions that they are accustomed to, and they continue off that. In Latin America, it's very different. They continue off of this hybridized feudalistic system that is basically usurped from the Aztecs and from the Maya and from the Inca, and then is perpetuated in uh, for years and years and years onward. Versus if you look at the founding of Virginia Company all the way up into the 13 colonies, it's a lot more democratic from the start because it had to be. 
down in Latin America was always a lot more feudalistic, aristocratic, and it never really escaped that to a large degree. So I'm going to say that all the way back during the conquistadors, we actually find one of the root problems. They don't have a system that is all that democratic. It's actually a lot more authoritarian. Yeah, I just had a point that when you when you brought up uh, Cortez in Mexico, it reminded me that, and I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, I think also Montezuma had a lot of enemies within the Aztec Aztec Empire, and Cortez would use those enemies to say, "Hey, go fight this guy for me." It, it was a that sorry. yeah, and that kind of thing that pitting locals against locals for the purpose of you know, the colonizing force that is not unique to Latin America. And it creates a lot of deep seated tensions really throughout, throughout much of the world. It's a very common thing up until the 20th century. Uh, and even in the 20th century, it was very common. Uh, it, it's really weird because literally what Cortez does is something that is very akin to what the, the feudal Lords would do in Europe, except or example, you know, is William the Conqueror, right? Just basically comes in, uh, kills, um, uh, Harold Hadrada or I'm sorry, not Harold Hadrada. Um, it's the, um, it's the other guy. Sorry. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Harold, just... uh, Harold, the Saxon or Harold of orange. Yeah. Anyway, comes in and, uh, and kills the, uh, basically the King of England and takes the throne for himself and just uses literally like bigger armacy diplomacy to win. And that is unironically kind of what Cortez and a lot of the conquistadors do is they literally just come in and usurp with basically 400 years of knowledge. Uh, of European politics, and they just use that in their own way to mm. usurp Spain or what is eventually New Spain. It's quite impressive what they are able to. Do. Um, granted, we can get in the smallpox and all these other things that come through that like absolutely destroy these societies, but it's almost like they're hard experienced into the point where they can literally just kind of roll in with gunpowder weapons and take everything over in what fifty years is when they can. Yeah, it was the timeline. It was very quickly, yeah. for sure. Well, before before we continue on, one of the things that I, I did want to mention here is that you said that um, the 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 conquistadors, the Spaniards, were able and Portuguese were able to um, essentially uh, subjugate the populace much more quickly and actually successfully than the Europeans, um, you know, UK and France did in North America. And I think that's very interesting because when I have what I've read about the, this time period, um, one of my favorite books actually is called uh, uh, Why Nations Fail. And they talk about this a lot. And in that book, they basically say that the in, in North America, they tried to reestablish the feudal system that existed in Europe for the benefit of the the backers of the of the the excursion so you know the governors appointed by the kings or or what have you and it didn't work because the winters were harsh the uh the the native populations were actually more united against foreign incursions than what typically that seemed to happen within um south and central america and the like and because of that difference you saw the the you know the enslavement of south and central america uh happened very quickly whereas in north america that like it happened but it was a long arduous process to do it and that was partly why they might have even imported slaves from africa 
because they weren't able to do it to the native population as they were able to, as the Spaniards were able to do in Central and South America. So I just wanted a little bit of thoughts about that and see if I'm wrong, if you don't agree. Uh, I, I, I do want to pick on this a bit. Uh, number one, the slave trade really does actually start in, in South America, or not South America, but in Latin America. And this is largely due to the fact of the America pox, which is all these diseases that come through the white population out. And they lose, they largely lose labor force. And so they decide to import one and they decide to import, import people from Eurasia that are immune to these diseases. And unfortunately, these are people that are largely from Africa that are part of the uh, what will be part of the triangle trade, or otherwise known as we call it the slave trade. Um, so North America doesn't really actually pick that up immediately. They're actually going to get that later. What we do see in North America that I, I largely disagree with is that the reason why it's so much slower is, uh, number one, is if you think about Central America, in the actual history is that it's actually a lot more populated and it's a lot more akin to what Europe does look like in some regards mm. where you've got all of these feudal states or what we would call feudal sure. uh, states kind of vying for power. It's, uh, you know, largely systems that are what we would call states and institutions. In North America, that's not quite the case. Population density is significantly lower. And if they're not openly nomadic, they're level, they're, if you will, regressive to the point of tribal. You have the Iroquois Confederacy. These are their folks. Mm. While technically more united overall are far less of an ever-present force. And one of the things that we see in the early colonial days, particularly as Lord Baltimore tried to put down, was, all right, cool. I'm part of the Virginia Company or part of the Maryland Company. We own you or you're an indentured servitude. But what we would continuously find is that people who would come over would literally just pack up and leave whatever settlement they were supposed to be out, and they would go into the hinterlands because you've got 10 million acres in these general coastal areas that you just get dropped off into that you can go out and about and build your own society. You don't need the people who just paid your bills over. And a lot of people kept leaving. And this is actually how we see very democratic and republican processes start taking off literally from the start is that gotcha. instead of having the open viceroys, which are something that we'll see more in India and throughout the rest mm -hmm. of the British Empire, we'll see here, we'll see congronial or colonial <laughs> congresses uh, gotcha. th that'll be the Commonwealth of Virginia. This is literally how it forms. The Commonwealth of Maryland, this is how it formed, is that the state that is the Empire of England, or if you will, this or the Kingdom of England, will have to literally just give suzerainty or sovereignty to these colonialists in order just to keep them on the same page that's largely what happens okay i mean yeah that's that's very fair i think that's that's very fair yeah one to one side thing this is somewhat unique with the the mexico versus the u.s and canada stuff is they had kind of continual relations with their home country you mentioned the Over virginia company and whatnot and obviously canada stayed close to the UK for a lot longer. Uh, Mexico, however, with Spain, uh, Cortez went there and he was technically told, hey, come back. But he said, nope, I'm not going that. So there's a bit more of a kind of fly by to see their pants. No, very, very important point. Oops. So uh, Tiberius, you were saying that um, we had to go all the way back to the conquistadors in order to understand this. And I think that's a, that's a good, important point. But where, like, if you were to fast forward to a particular time period, when does it, when does, when, when would it be the next step that we have to like pay extra attention to? 
Um, I would say there's two major steps along the way that that you could have changed the course of history for Latin America, <laughs> and that is independence. And then the next one is the revolutionary periods that they'll have. Um, mm-hmm. Independence is pretty straightforward. This is when Spain, or when the basically the local nobility says that Spain is not worth uh, being a part of it. And uh, mm-hmm. I, that that friction was so rolling. I mean, it, they they consider it literally like the revolutions of our day, but they're not really revolutions. They're literally breakaway sentiments, uh, similar to what mm-hmm. we kind of see in the United States, but far worse. Uh, the original Mexican Revolution that actually breaks them away from Spain kills half a million people. Like it, it's kind of ridiculous in the level of how fierce it was, and literally Spain largely goes into this war or this uh, secessionist movement, if you will, uh, under the guise that if they can't have it, they'll burn everything to the ground. And that literally is what the last four years of this particular engagement is, is that Spain realizes that they're losing and they'll literally just torch half of Mexico. Um, Mm. Overall, what happens here is a a little sad, but a little weird. And I'm going to be a little bit nihilistic here, but it's kind of one of those creative destruction measures the problem with what we see during the secessionist movement, or you will, the independence movements, is that it brings their society almost to its knees, uh, if we're talking about the, the settler state. But it doesn't outright break them to the point where they need a societal reformation. And so eventually, the kleptocrats that have been running it as a, like, a more feudal system will be able to retain power, keep power, and this is what we'll start to see with the military juntas of Mexico, even though it's technically a republic, it really mm. acts as more of a military junta. And that's a problem. And that will continue for the better part of another hundred years before you get the Mexican Revolution, or at least the more modern one, which, you know, brings out Cinco de Mayo and whatnot. Uh, yeah, all of this gets um, terrible. It's just it's and- terrible. No, and, and it's it's important to, to point that out because what what I would say that we kind of see is a uh, for lack of a better better way to phrase this is kind of like the establishment of some sort of hierarchical system within Central and South America um, that is partly around racial lines, but also partly around class lines. Would you say that that's that's correct? OK. And then what what we see during the revolutionary period is that we're seeing kind of like somewhat of a breakdown of that without the entire removement removal of it. And I think that's part of the things that we see reverberating today, which is the indigenous movements within Central America, South America are still for a, a very large part still fighting for full recognition, sometimes autonomy. It depends on the state, right, or the country. And that is partly how we see things like, you know, within Brazil, we're not talking about Brazil today, but it's a good example, like within Brazil, how the, the native populations get, you know, see their territory get taken or the, the Amazon forest get cur- curbed and things like that uh, against what exists with against their wishes. Um, would you say that that's fair? I'd say more than not, like this gets into classism and granted, I'm not a huge follower of our good friend Marx. But of course. O- overall, is uh, there is a level where like class warfare is absolutely a real thing, and this is mm-hmm. definitely something that it predominates Latin America. You know, we talk about the one percent here in the United States, but it's nothing compared to what we see in Latin America. Usually, in Latin America, it's the point oh one uh, that oh, yeah. is in control of so much, and it, it is like literally Mexico 
has two different terms for poverty where in like for them impoverished is you can't buy normal goods but then you have like an upper poor class for them that is like i can't remember what it's called like lower it would translate to like a lower poverty or a greater poverty where mm. you can afford some things just not all the things and that just actually emphasizes what i'm actually getting at which is mm. we're talking about places that you know, I don't like to talk about wealth distribution a whole lot because it just that's not really my gig. But there's a point where you have to acknowledge that it's a thing. And if mm -hmm. people are scared of what's going on in North America and Europe, take a look at Latin America. It's been so much worse for so much longer. And they never really broke those old systems. They never had the Industrial Revolution that kind of made a middle class for Western Europe and North America. They had an Industrial Revolution but everyone who got all the nice things from that were the aristocrats. Right. Uh, North Countryman, what would you say about my, my question or some of the points that we've been making? What uh, Tiberius mentioned, it reminded me of something, uh, not Latin America, this was Eastern Europe, but it had to do with judges and how judges there, it was commonplace for them to accept bribes. And mm -hmm. I remember one of my, one of my undergrad instructor professors told me this and you know, he was told this at a conference and then he asked, well, why do they accept bribes? And it's told because they need to feed their families. And in the U.S., you know, our judges are paid quite a lot to end. That's actually unusual in a lot of other countries. And as a result, like, OK, well, guess what? We got to we got to buy. We actually have to be able to buy necessity. So that leads to bribery and drug trade is pretty good at bribery. It's very so. true. Can I piggyback off that for just a second? Yeah, go for it. One of the things that you, you can definitely look at in South America is the official salaries of a lot of these institutions are incredibly low. Uh, we're talking not only police officers, but judges, mm -hmm. administrators, all the way up to governorships. They're incredibly weak um, as far as actual like payment compensation. In the United States, we like to you know complain about how much like people are paid or not paid. Like I'm actually of the opinion that we need to pay our representatives more, but other conversation entirely. Um, but I mean, some people think that they're overpaid here and I'm, I, I'm, I look at Mexico and I'm like, everyone's on the take. It's most of the people don't secure their wealth through actual salary and position. They secure it through bribery, extortion, and basically everything that we would call dirty and dark money. Um, like this is real corruption. It's using the position to influence people in a particular way where it's not by law and it's not like, Hey, you know, I'll give you a billion dollars to have this interstate. If you give me a billion dollars to have this high speed rail, it's, Hey, um, yeah, pay me up now or I have the mob show up on you or well, basically the, or the gangster will show up on your doorstep. Um, it, it's incredible. It's the line from Goodfellas that I don't think we could say if you want to, put this out yes. in podcast format yeah yes uh unironically uh that's the kind of where it is and i, I hate that that's the, what we're dealing with here but uh, the problem is is that if you don't have enough people as like a middle class or a lower class that can check the richer uh more prominent people this is what happens when extreme wealth does get out of hand uh you're For gonna sure. turn me into a marxist on this episode but wait, hey whatever. i mean I, well like if marx wouldn't be so popular if it wasn't for the fact that he's hitting on some troops, right? Yeah. So just because you just because you don't necessarily agree with his ultimate 
conclusion. This doesn't mean you have to discount he everything he said. Yeah. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and this is actually why I am a firm, uh, I firmly point forward that the reason that we see so many what we would call left leaning or leftist movements within Latin America is for exactly this reason. You don't see. Yeah the hard right do extremely well in, or in Latin America. You know, we can talk about Bolsonaro in Brazil, but that's actually more of the exception rather than the rule. They tend to be, if they are right-wingers, uh, military juntas and dictatorships, but the people yeah. don't generally like them. The more popular movements are far more leftist and left-wing movements. And, you know, they might be more successful, but then you have to point the direction at the American, you know, foreign policy. Which is a and, whole other conversation. <laughs> it's a whole other conversation, but I'm glad that you brought it up because I think that this is another key aspect of why we're seeing what we're seeing in Latin America, right? So, like, I, I think the people that watch this show or, or anything else that either any of us on the show produce are going to be fairly knowledgeable. So we don't have to get in too much into the weeds on it. But, you know, they call them banana republics for a reason, right? And, you know, the Ch Chiquita actually, like, controlled all of, oh, God, but I'm terrible with names. Well, which was the country? What was, like, what, which country did Chiquita actually control? I gotta, I gotta remember myself. I don't uh, even remember. You know what? I'm gonna look it up right I now. I want to so say I Panama, but I could be wrong. I don't. Yeah. Chiquita. Rolled which country? Panama, you're right. Panama, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Ecuador, Colombia, Nicaragua, Mexico, and Peru. That's where they were all located in. And uh, yeah, they it was Panama. They basically controlled all of Panama. So, like, it's a thing, right? And then America's incursions into Latin America can go all the way back, even before the Monroe Doctrine, but you can at least go to the Monroe Doctrine where we said, hey, this is our sphere of influence. Everybody else, fuck off. And you see... You know, oh, America we can say tried. that word. Oh, yeah, you can say fuck <laughs> off. Don't worry about it. Oh, by the way, uh, just, just to interrupt you and hijack your show a little sure. bit. Um, Chiquita Brands, owned by, I think it was uh, John Foster Dulles. His brother, uh -huh. Alan Dulles, founded the CIA. So <laughs> there is a link between those two. 100% true. 100% true. Oh, yeah. this is going to be a memes episode. I love it. Oh, my God. Like, oh, like I was saying, like, this is stuff that actually has happened, and it gives leftists in the United States ammunition against our own government. The three of us are all Americans here. And, like, you have to acknowledge that these are problems. You know, the, the a lot of business interest within the United States when we were interfering in Latin America more directly, we're actually like in charge of military units or, you know, at least being like, hey, come over and like establish this rubber factory for us. And America's like, OK, we need it for war anyway. So fuck it. <laughs> right. And um, and that's just like a thing. And I want to I want to talk a little bit more about that. And I don't want to get both of your opinions because I'm more left than either of you. So I want to understand where you guys come from. Uh, North Country, you're, man, a rose, you you're a rose between two thorns here. I am. I am. Go go for it. So. Uh, what was the. So I just want to like get your more of your opinion on like how much American foreign policy might have like impacted what we're seeing kind of today. Um, 
you know, how much how much of the blame in your estimation rest on American interference within Latin America for corruption and the eventual existence of, of a narco state. But going before, you know, the drug, the war on drugs. Yeah, I think we a lot of what. Uh, it, wow. Part of the reason why the U.S. has such an involvement in Latin America, especially with the replacing of elected leaders with military juntas is of the backdrop of the cold war castro uh, castro came into cuba with like 12 guys and over overturned fulengio batista and set up a communist government like 90 miles off of florida and that scared the u.s quite a lot and so that plus domino theory which is the idea that if one nation falls to communism other nations are going to fall too meant all right we're seeing these you know very kind of yay workers the u.s imperialism sucks and cozying up to the soviets they the u.s looks at that and says okay we don't want that to happen so mm -hmm. you end up with with several coups replacing they're removing elected leaders from power and then a right junta comes into place and it happens so much that like if you like if you ask someone find examples of the u.s committing regime change but then you said, aside from Latin America, I think there's like maybe <laughs> two that I can think of, maybe off the top of my head, if that. Tiberius can probably think of a few more, but yeah, most of that regime change happened in Latin America because we did it a lot. What, just to, to get a little more um, opinion, though, like as part of some the of that War. was right, but that was that was part of the Cold War, but wasn't some of that in relation to how we propped up people or business interests that happened before then? Would you do you know anything about that or have an opinion on it? Like, because with Baptista, we they the America America tried to establish, um, not tried to establish, but you know, very heavily influenced Cuba to be basically a vacation spot, and so a lot of the um, a lot of the prime real estate areas was developed for American hotels and business people in order to vacation down there while the yeah, the southern area of, of the country basically was left to squalor. I mean, if, if you look at it, it's like Latin America, the U.S. Some, somewhat does look at it as, as America's backyard, which is probably sure. a very patronizing way of looking at it. And because if you look at, say, like the Monroe Doctrine, it says, no, mm -hmm. Europe, you do not come interfere with these interferes with these uh, quote unquote, independent states. But then eventually you have the Roosevelt corollary and saying like, yeah. oh, you know what? We actually will. The, even sure. the history of the Panama Canal, just the creation, the selection of Panama as the location of that. It was originally, I think, going to be in Colombia, but some other people wanted it in Panama. And they said, oh, you know what? Colombia has a big volcano that'll possibly erupt. And it didn't. And so they just said, nope, we're going to do it in Panama instead. So there is just honestly petty, sometimes petty financial related motivations for U.S. interfering in in Latin America. And so it's that idea of like, this is in our backyard. We can do what we want. It's America's turn to empire now, baby. <laughs> honestly, yeah, that's kind of, it's like it's it's a little bit kind of the when parents spank their children it's like it's my kid i can do what i want but with nations involving their children involving other nations right well except in this case no they're not our kids <laughs> gotcha tiberius thoughts opinions 
Yeah, so I'm not going to go all in on this one, but I'll, I'll suffice it to say that if I had to break it down, uh, I'd say there was about 40% of this that is like the historical institutionalism that we've been talking about. I'm going to say there's another 30 or 40% of this that falls into the geography, and the remaining, which would be about 2030, is probably the American influence. Now, here's the thing where I'm going to distance myself from some parts that have been said here. Just because you have a, or like um, a multi-directional input for certain things does not mean that you have a conspiracy. I think you all are familiar with like that kind of phrasing. The, the problem that you tend to have is actually most of the American influence within Latin America isn't directly like foreign ops or the American government trying to topple them nearly as much as it is American businessmen coming in and toppling government. Mm -hmm. And we saw this in Hawaii as an example, is that literally you have corporate leaders and business leaders and wealthy people can literally come in and just take out entire governments uh, on their own behalf. They don't even have to have government or, you know, U.S. Uh, government support. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And uh, I also want to point out that we do punch both ways, you know, as much as we are like, oh, evil leftist people, we have to kick their ass, which is, uh, you know, definitely part of a remnant of the Cold War, is that we also hit military juntas and right-wing people that we didn't particularly like either, particularly uh, Manuel Noriega in Panama mm. back in 89. Um, we openly would take sides and we would openly just be like, all right, we don't like you. You don't tell the line uh, very well. And we would just tell you it stuck it. Um, Panama obviously is one of those weird situations because it doesn't matter if it's right wing or left wing, if they're not wanting to fill the role that we love for Panama, because it's got the canal, we largely step in at a moment's notice. Um, so it's not going to be the same as, uh, Nicaragua as an example, which can get away with a lot more because we don't necessarily care as much. And, uh, it's quite interesting to see some of these states and how and where they've actually all lined up. Okay, that's fair. Uh, for for my for for me personally, I think that um, you can't like. I think a, a, somebody that's really far left would be like, "It's all America's fault." CIA ops, everything, like everything is America's fault. I don't think you can do that. You have to have. You say that the, I'm pretty sure. Like each of us saw like six different people that we've interacted with would say that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what I'm saying. Like, there's there's people that say this stuff, and I wouldn't go that far. I would say that it is it makes entirely sense like if you look at the world from a kind of real politic lens which I think is actually one of the better lenses to look at how interactions happen because you can kind of game theory it out a bit is that people have interest and they have their own individual sections of power and so if their interests are being thwarted they will use that power in order to reassert their interest and so we have that with America, the government, America businesses, and et cetera. But you also have that within the countries themselves where there are different pockets of power, different pockets of corruption, or what have you. And they're also trying to leverage either where America is going or where anti-American people are going in order to get assert their own power. And so I think it's, it's not like a 50-50 split. I would say like... Foreign foreigners, foreign relations, uh, the bigger dogs in the fight have probably more sway within the smaller countries than uh, a 50 50 split, maybe like 60 40, 70 25, maybe depends on the area. Uh, but you can't take all the agency away from the country and the people they're in uh, and say that they don't have any culpability in the matter. So that's where I come on this. Uh, that's where I fall on this, is, is, is there. Um, but 
I think we've we've talked broadly about Latin America, about where things are have started. I think now we can get into more of the the nitty gritty uh, surrounding the drug war in particularly and the rise of what has been called the narco state. And I think personally that you can go back before the war on drugs with Nixon and start to look at uh, when the war on drugs really started, which was with marijuana. Would you would either of you say that that's a fair assessment that we could actually start there a little bit because of the uh, the importation and growing of marijuana? Or do you think this actually has to start with Nixon during the Cold War um, and, and look at it that way? I think for the U.S. focus, that's I think we might want to go a little earlier than Nixon, but uh, just the idea of narco states in general. <clears throat> Sorry. Uh, at one point uh, and just doing the research on this. uh UK at one point could have been considered a narco state just because of the opium wars. Oh, so, though so it's not a the term narco state, it's it's got a long history and use of drug drug trade and infiltrating governments and kind of being used for nefarious purposes. It's it's got a long history, not just unique to Western Hemisphere. Sure, sure. Uh, this th that's a very good point. Um, but as we are talking more mostly around, you know, Latin America and things like that, would you say that that was just a fun? So you're just, yeah, gotcha. So you would say just maybe slightly before Nixon, but not too earlier than that for this particular topic. Yeah, I would say. Okay. Yeah, I would say that just because you'd have to establish that, OK, there is a trade actually coming in gotcha. at some point. Uh, Tiberius, what about what about you? How would you where would you say this might have actually started? So I'm actually going to uh, feign a little bit of ignorance here. I'm not 100 percent sure where I want to start it. Um, I, I know some history regarding the drug trade. I know some history regarding Central American influence mm -hmm. or American influence in Central America. But I'm not actually going to openly be like, oh, yeah, it's totally this. Um, I'd actually have to study up on that. And I apologize, but um, I don't know. No, I mean, that that's entirely fair. I, I don't know the I am not confident enough to say, yes, 100 percent started here. That's why I was like, I think it would start around this time frame. Um, and and I think that's important because I think that is something that not just us as you know nascent political talking heads say, but I think this is also something that isn't actually agreed upon, at least in my research, by uh, higher and higher up academics and the like. And so I think that um, I think that's an important important distinction to do here. Um, one of the other things that I think is uh, is important, and this might be backtracking a little bit, but um, you can't really have the existence of a narco state without two things, which is the trade, as Tiberius said, and the corruption that we've been previously talking about. Would either of you say that that's fair as well? That it actually takes these two things to create it, or do you think that the the existence of a drug trade and having it being illegal in of itself creates the corruption that that cascades and uh, goes down the line? I think there's three things I, here. Oh. Uh, can I take this real quick? Yeah. Sure. So I think there's three things here. Number one is that uh, part of it is the supply and demand. If you you need demand for drugs, actually supply to drug trade, right? So, and Americans love their cocaine and their heroin and all that stuff, which is unfortunate, but is reality. Uh, and they have the money to spend it, which is, or they have the money to get it, which is even more. Um, second is that, um, unironically enough, tr um, excuse me, 
drug organizations kind of act like terror networks in a way. And I'm not saying like they're that they're one and the same, but they have similar mm. mechanics in the regards that if you have a state that is extremely strong that can police its its sovereign territory very hard and very strongly, it's really hard to get a terror network or a drug organization really going and really thriving. Um, but if you have one that's just weak enough to claim suzerain or sovereignty over an area, but not entirely strong enough to enforce it, and we can talk about Central America, and we did, I think we talked about this a little bit when we talked about Afghanistan mm -hmm. uh, in particular, is that that's kind of the same mechanic overall, where you know, you've got Panama, you've got Honduras, you've got Nicaragua, which are, you know, they are states and they do have some level of central control, but they're actually not strong enough to literally police their entire regions with active police forces and active military presence. They, they can't control their borders uh, superfluously. They don't have much, enough of a Navy or a Coast Guard to patrol their, or their shorelines. And so you're going to have people be able to slip through the cracks. Um, and then third and foremost is, I think, part of that institutional part that I've been hitting over and mm -hmm. over again, which is if you've got cracks and you've got people that can influence into the cracks where you can start paying off three people instead of 30 people because you have far less of a separation of power, then it's easy for everyone to get in on the cut or for the few people that need to be on the cut. It's easier for them to do so. Um, and I, I, this is actually one of the things that I really think democracy is great at having the separation of power between individuals as much as it possibly can be is a great way to keep people policed and in line because everyone can call each other out on their nonsense. But when it's more kleptocratic or aristocratic, you don't have as many people to call it out. So yeah, I think that's something that. Yeah, I think that's a very good point about the the separation of powers, because like you said, if there's only three people you have to pay off, that's much easier to do than like the 30. And democracy helps with that. Um, but uh, North Countryman, what were you wanting to say? Uh, just as a counterpoint is if you look at, say, prohibition in the U.S. in the 1920s, well, you had someone like Al Capone. He didn't he wasn't taken out by a coup or anything like that. He was imprisoned for tax evasion, right? which uh, which is kind of a really good example of institutions staying in place. He wasn't got by the FBI or anything like that. He was got by the IRS. No, it's, that's or you, actually. Or if you believe Hollywood, uh, Kevin or Kevin Costner and Sam, Sean Connery. Yeah, still a pretty good movie. <laughs> that but, that's yeah. You can have point. infiltration in like say maybe local levels in Chicago. But when you have those kind of stronger institutions, even at the national level, they can fight back and sometimes they'll win. So yeah, and there was the institution there was thing so, is pretty important. No, that's that's very true. There was so much like murder that happened during this time period in the United States um, that we had to centralize power a little bit more. Um, you know, the creation of the ATF and the um, uh, the the implementation of, of different like laws under the commerce clause in order to fight the organizations um and giving an fbi a little more authority and i think that's something that's been missing uh, not been missing but it's been like more nascent at least within latin america i would say uh because of us tabir said in north countrymen you said that they don't have as strong central authorities to actually go into uh, maybe the rural areas where they're hiding out at, or you know maybe they're just they don't pay enough, they don't have enough wealth to actually pay people to combat the uh, the, the 
narco terrorist networks. And so they're able to pay off people and, you know, build up political capital, much like the mob did in like little little Italy's across the United States and this sort of thing, because there just wasn't the economic activity. Would you say, would you, I mean, you're going like this, are you, you, you see no, the no, parallels I, or? I, I largely agree with that. I, I didn't want to voice up, uh, you know, for any particular over details, but this is just, this is where we've seen this literally since time immemorial is that organized crime can absolutely infect the political, political structure. And usually what we see uh, that allows that is either one of two things. One is that just people don't have enough money and they have to do, use the crime to get by. Uh, and this is literally what we see here in modern America in our poorest neighborhoods. People don't turn to crime because they want to. People turn to crime because they can't pay the bills. Like, and it's just literally what it is. How many stories have you heard about a father who turned to selling drugs just to feed his kids? Like, that's oh, a real thing. Yeah, it's a real thing. On the other side of that is that the reason organized crime can really permeate into a community is when it corrupts its leaders. And we were just talking about that. So I, yeah. I was largely shaking my head to agree with you more than anything. So, okay. I, I, yeah, that's fair. So we've we've been streaming for about uh, 50 minutes or so. Um, what is there anything that we haven't talked about that you really want to get into uh, before we start talking about like possible solutions to this because we've given this huge broad overview with like history and talking about corruption and everything but we haven't like gotten into in particulars and i'm not saying that we have to but i i do want to give you you both the opportunity to say more on something before we move into like possible solutions i still uh, want to hit the, the oh, go ahead just Mark. a just a quick thing to put numbers on the uh the money aspect the sal the salary of a president of mexico translated into converted into us currency is like mm -hmm. five is like four thousand dollars a month whereas the american president's like nine thousand plus so it's it's like half there and that's the current salaries so you know that does put it in perspective yeah yeah yearly it's like a hundred sixteen thousand for the u for the u.s president but mexican president's only like 57,000, which is an average American salary close to. Yeah, it's yeah. close to the median. Yeah, wow. the, United, the United States president makes 400,000 uh, as a government salary uh, a year. And uh, each senator, or I'm sorry, a, a sitting freshman representative will make 176,000. Um, yeah, middle class so in New York. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to get there. But anyway. <laughs> I do have one thing I want to want to I do want to tag on, and that was the geography section. And being the person that looks into geopolitics, there are certain areas of the world that I think are far more like suitable for human habitation and development than others. Uh, what we tend to find overall, and I've got a long video series that I'm working on explaining this, is that there are places where it does seem that human industry, human societies like to thrive far better at. And it used to start with like river valleys, you know, you'd have the Tigers, Euphrates, the Indus River Valley, that kind of thing. Uh, and then they expanded out into like the river plains themselves. So you got Mesopotamia, then eventually you would have uh, largely what we saw um, within um, China, as an example, is that you got the major river valleys there. That would be the core of what we now call modern China. The last level of technological diffusion made it to where it is now temperate climate zones that are interlaced with river valleys that you can float stuff. 
And so we're talking, if you just notice the map here, look at North America, look at most of uh, Europe, and then look at parts of Asia overall, where you see relatively flat rivers that are in areas that have a little bit of a winter and a little bit of a summer, seems to be some of the most uh, profitable and stable institutions that you find in the in the modern world. But if you look at Mexico, if you look at most of Latin America, there's only one place in all of what we consider Latin America where you have any of that. And that's the La Plata, aka Argentina. Well, Argentina is an interesting case if we need to get into that. But overall, is that if you actually look at Mexico in particular, it's got two problems. One, it's either tropical or arid. And two, it's incredibly mountainous. And um, to summarize this all really quickly, if you're going to build a road from place to place, you don't want mountains in the way. That's always expensive as hell. You can go through Colorado, Utah, Nevada to find that out very, very quickly. And then what makes it even worse is that if you're in places that don't have uh, what we would call temperate climate zones is that it's hard to grow crops. It's hard to regulate water. It's hard to regulate your climatology. Go to go to southern Georgia and find out how bad your AC bill is most oh, yeah. of the year. These Shit, things I live in Texas. So. Yes, these things <laughs> add up to generating capital and wealth in the regards that every time that you have to pay a higher power bill because you're in an arid place or a tropical place because you're running the air conditioner, that's less money that you have to spend on other projects. And what you seem to have, what we largely seem to have in the United States and Europe in particular, which is, you know, the chokehold of industrialized civilization is that it generates more capital because it's got mild winters and mild summers compared to most of the world. And I think that's one, that's a huge deal. I really do. Here's a fun asterisk to underline the AC thing Uh, in the statuary hall in the house of representatives. Each state can submit uh, two prominent individuals you know, who are deceased from their states to have a statue in there. Uh, Florida submitted the guy who invented the air conditioning. That's awesome. Yeah. That's a great little <laughs> piece of trivia. <laughs> yeah. I, there, there, there is a reason why, you know, in, in the Southern Hemisphere and like in places where there's like a ton of um, humidity that siestas exist right that people take large chunks of time off in the middle of the day it just gets too fucking hot to do anything before ac existed so you just like like connor did this he was like you're just he said this he's like you're just sitting there stewing in your own juices drinking lemonade or like water or whatever because you couldn't do fuck else so i think that's a great great point that you brought up uh tiberius uh, before, before we get into any other like other fixes is there anything else that we you want to bring up I, I largely hit everything I wanted to. Um, I, a lot of people do not respect the geography and climate. They they don't really think about what that actually can do. And so I'm always going to beat that drum whenever I can. And it's not just because I'm on a crusade, but it's my job. Um, or at least <laughs> right. the, the, what I want my job to be is talking about how demography and geography play what more of a role than uh, a lot of people think that it actually does. And a uh, quick tagline here demography in the United States is going to be a huge issue regarding labor. So hire me on for that chat. Oh no, we, we definitely, we all need to get together for that one. That's a, God, I wish I could get a hold of Logan again. He's, he's a demo, he's basically a demographer turned uh, a real estate investor. So he, he's, he knows his shit on that one too. Um, I hit on supply right. chains, Tiberius. So don't worry about hitting on your favorite topics. You know, we all have our passions. Oh, I know. Yes. 
so I, I do want to like to to wrap up the show. I do want to talk about like some of the possible fixes and and in those fixes, I want to say like talk about how much all of us believe that the US, United States government uh, should play a role in this, if at all. Um, so I'll, I'll start first and then I'll just give like a, a possible fix uh, with this or a maybe a long term thing. And then we can go like kind of round table. North Country, you can give your thing and then Tiberius can give his thing. And then we can um, just kind of pin, ping back and forth off of this. So I think one of the, the central issues that is it, we all know it's corruption, right? That's the central issue. But in order to tackle corruption, you have to have certain things. And one of those things is you have to have investment. And I think that's where America could come in to do it, but it has to be done through a, a program that doesn't look like we're just trying to take things for ourselves. Um, so, and there's going to be wary people, people are going to be understandably wary of any U S or international investment into a, you know, Latin American country because of the history that's back there. So I think that's one of the things that we can do, but it has to be done very narrow, narrow focused, and also with the direct input of the people that not just are in power, but the people that live in the area where there's going to be investment. So I think that's one of the things that we can do. North Countryman, what about you? Yeah, I, I would agree that they do definitely do need to do the kind of infrastructure and investment, uh, which somewhat reminds me, both good and bad news, is that one of the sources of investment in in other countries that isn't you know U.S. or has the quote unquote you know taint of imperialism that would come from come from opponents is uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which mm -hmm. they're doing pretty heavily. I believe in Africa. I don't know yes. how prominent they are in Latin America. I haven't heard much, but it is. It is something where they are investing in, well, they're putting in, they're putting in roads and they're building in those supply chains to keep things to serve as just kind of an alternative to the U.S. And well, having an alternative to the U.S. is okay, but not when it's an oppressive authoritarian regime like China. So that's kind of a, there's an opportunity there, but it's not a good one. That's fair. Would you what would you say other than like investment in infrastructure is something that uh, can happen in Latin America to help with the um, excuse me with with the issue we've been talking about though? I would say having a a bureaucratic system that is kind of more of merit based, like I don't like a very strong civil service system, like an actual like serious one where like no, you are in by your qualifications, not based on who you know and they're actually paid a worthy amount and this might you need you need legitimate politicians kind of like uh was the who's the guy in venezuela juan juan guaido you need guys like kind of in that mold but elected into high office prominently like they have the understanding of how to do this but you know, you're not coming from like, say, Gerald Bolsonaro, who's a former military guy, mm. and all they know is military. You need people with the understanding of this is how you build up a community. So, so that's, some that's some I mean. sort of some sort of like technocrat, but like yes, the that's the word I'm looking for. Okay. 
Okay, that's fair. Uh, Tiberius, Use what about you? Like to describe my ramble. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm going to have to go a lot darker here, and I actually had this conversation just just the other day. Um, I I hate this. I really do. So I don't think investment is really the primary primary problem anymore. Uh, it's gotten a lot better with uh, particularly NAFTA, which is now you know the USMCA. Is that um, I can't pronounce any of these states, uh, but uh, as an example, uh, bordering Texas, there are three major Mexican states. Uh, one mm-hmm. of them is Novo Leon. I can't pronounce the other two. But between Texas and these three states, uh, as part of the NAFTA agreement, we have largely built out a trillion dollar industry, uh, a trillion dollars in heavy industry. These are automobiles. These are uh, largely uh, assembly line productions of some form or another that mm-hmm. all the lower end stuff is done on the Mexican side. And then the final assembly is largely done on the Texas side. And we're talking mm-hmm. everything around Laredo, Corpus Christi, Brownsville, that kind of thing, right? Um, overall, uh, just in this region, is that the I-35 and the I-37 corridors basically are the final end product or final end of that stage. But on the Mexican side is you've had a trillion dollars of investment overall in this. And we're not seeing a lot of, um, a lot of increases of livelihood and pros- or prosperity that we'd usually expect out of that level of investment. Don't get me wrong, all the industry's there, all the jobs are there, but when we're actually talking about the level of pay that these folks get, when we're talking about the actual level of care that they get, they have better health care. That's about it. Like mm. overall, we're we're looking at a system that just doesn't really get the the bottom line people to where they should be, especially even considering that they're bordered next to the superpower. Uh, there's a wonderful documentary I, I've been watching recently about uh, Nogales which is a city that borders uh, in Arizona, uh, Mexico and uh, Arizona, right? Um, it was literally split by the gas and purchase. And one of the weird parts is that you literally look by a border, one side has an income that is double that of the other. One side has twice the amount of college graduates, all of this stuff, right? What we're seeing, at least for me, is that with CAFTA and with NAFTA overall, is that the investment opportunities are there, and for what is happening is we've seen a massive amount of build out within Mexico that makes it not look like a third world nation anymore. We've got mm-hmm. numerous pipelines that have been built in the last 10 years that is alleviating the brownout problems because they're tying themselves into the natural gas outflows of the Eagle Ford Shale in Texas, and they're powering their power plants with it. So like literally the power revolution that we're having here in the United States, they're having in Mexico too. But all of this just isn't hitting this massive input. And the reason why I went down this whole level of train is that I think that Latin America kind of has to go through another like breakdown revolutionary period to get to where they need to be. And that is either they're going to have to politically defang a lot of these aristocrats or they're going to have to, quote unquote, kill them. And Uh, say the last part again, they're going to have to probably kill them. Like, I mean, I'm not openly advocating for this, but this is what we generally see when you have this level of power stuck in is that you see a full revolution. And I'm not openly condoning this or saying this, but this is just, you know, what we generally deal with is that either the aristocrats have to give up power and they're forced to, which uh, that's rough, or generally at some point the people get pissed off enough they take it and, uh, Again, not advocating for anything here, but honestly, I'm just kind of waiting and I'm sitting and waiting because I don't expect things to get much better uh, for Mexico. And that's the tragedy. You've got numerous jobs, numerous amounts of industrialization and capital pouring into the country. 
and it just goes to the top 1%. And I know I'm sounding like a, a mat crazed about Marxist here, but there's a level where if you don't have the institutions to actually prop up the people who make your society function, then you don't have a society that helps the average person. And mm. this is something that I've, if you guys are actually concerned about this, um, I've actually talked about this for the United States and Western Europe as well. We're not getting better, we're getting worse. And we're starting to look more and more like that system every day. I have reasons to believe why that is, but that's a whole other episode too. Sure. I, I think that that's I think that's fair. And this is something that is worse in other parts of Central America as well. Um, so that Mexico, we, we, we know Mexico like like the back of our hand, right? Because we, we live next to Mexico. But <clears throat> the the other Latin American countries have endemic corruption. Uh, they have endemic wealth inequality, and it's at levels worse than what we're seeing in Mexico. A lot of people leave from Central America to get to the United States. They have to pass through Mexico and sometimes they stay in Mexico, but oftentimes they're like, no, we got to get away from all this stuff, all the drugs, all the gangs, because they have, you know, people everywhere. And so, yeah, that's a, a very important point. I think a another thing that could be done and you know what? I was going to say it, but never mind. Now I'm thinking about it because it's being done. It's just not being done well. And that is joint exercises between the U.S. and um, Mexican police, Guatemalan military, what have you, in order to root out um, the, the cartels themselves. And that's something that's been happening for decades, you know, basically since the DEA exi has existed, right? You can track this all the way back to the DEA's founding, essentially. And it doesn't seem to work because once you like, it's like a hydra, right? Once you cut off one head, two heads grow and you just got to You got to kill the entire body and you can't do that absent maybe a not a full scale invasion by the United States, but something similar within a country, right? So I don't know. I don't know how we could how they could tackle this issue absent that kind of thing is there do you do either of you think of there's a possibility for them to do it that way or is this beyond military and police actions and this is something that's going to have to come maybe from the bottom up like that uh article that a friend shared in our group chat i i've, I've got two things here um uh, the americans can help but the americans are going to have to do this in a very heavy-handed way that's going to make a lot of americans uncomfortable uh mm. but it can be done and that is like I don't want to say openly invasion, but you, you're talking about states that literally can't police their own sovereignty, or at least mm -hmm. if they can, it's just enough where they can keep their own national borders intact, but they can't stop drug traffickers. They can't stop right. human trafficking. They can't stop. Uh, they literally can't stop convoys and caravans to a large degree. And some degree, they don't even want to. Um, that's a problem. Not only for them, for us. Um, you know, we, we talk about immigration all the live long day, but you got to remember that on the other side of that, this is a massive amount of human capital and human labor that is leaving your countries or is passing through, and you're not able to control that shows what kind of situation that these states are in, uh, that either people want to leave. And remind you, these are people's homes. People don't just pack up and leave their homes at the drop of a hat. It's got to be pretty bad. Uh, so number one, it's bad. Number two is that, um, you know, no one can stop them. It literally takes the United States border before anyone even slows them down. 
Um, so that, is, in a nutshell, is at least where I'm at in the regards that if the United States wants to have a firm presence here, uh, whether it be police and military, you can do that. And you can help sure up some gaps that need to be filled. Um, that is, I'm not going to say open occupation, but it might be open military assistance, which usually hasn't gone over very well in this region. Yeah. So they're probably not going to jump over on that one. But it could be the conversation that that changes the game in some regards. Uh, the other side of that is we've tried with the policing part to some degree already, which is what mm-hmm. Cypher was talking about. And that is most of our operatives that we send in, they believe in the mission, they go down. And the general consensus of from anyone that I've talked to or have heard from is that we believe in it, but they don't. Um, almost everybody who is in a government position, whether it's police, law enforcement, um, or just the judiciary, is on the take. And it's one thing where you've got a few bad eggs. You know, we always talk about policing here in America and how we've always got, you know, a problematic judge or a sheriff. But when everybody's on the take, or at least like 80, 90% of people are on the take, you're not talking about fixing a system that has a few problems. You're talking about a complete structural overhaul if not a complete rebuild. Uh, And that, like, again, I'm not, I don't like to sound like a revolutionary, but when you're talking about the United States, most of our systems work pretty well. They need changes. They need tweaks and fixes. When you're talking about a lot of these Mexican systems or Central American systems, they almost need a full breakdown and rebuild. Um, And that's just how bad it is, is that some systems do get to the point where they need uh, systematic overhaul. Uh, and that's what we're looking at in Central America overall, is that the problem is, is that, for me, who controls these? It's the people who have power. It's the people who have influence. That's fine. Yeah. But whenever they have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo and it doesn't help anybody except themselves, well, that usually comes at fire and blood and brimstone. And that's why I'm, in, I'm just incredibly grim and dark on the solutions mm-hmm. category is that Usually when we just see this kind of thing, it doesn't go over well in history. Uh, and if North has got some examples to like show me that I'm wrong, I'd love to see it. But most of the time, uh, when you have extreme inequalities like this, when you have extreme power vacuums like this, uh, you get French Revolution events, not, you know, populist uprising. Right. Yeah, I can't think I- of any times when a military solution led to in a situation like this led to kind of a permanent, permanent thing. Like the only thing I can even remotely think of would have been rebuilding Germany post-World War II, but that's a totally different scenario. It is. Yeah. We can't, we can't uh, have before, a national plan for Latin America. <laughs> I well, mean, we, the U S would be highly suspicious of that. If, sure. As it, that Latin America would be suspicious of us doing that, but I think they kind of, do need something like a Marshall plan, but like, where's it going to come from and be accepted is the question. So here's the reality that at least that I, I kind of been like drilling around and circling around of is that like the reason why the Marshall plan works so well for Europe is that, you know, our former allies, such as the British and the French have institutions that are very akin to ours. And then our former axis that we basically defeated, we broke them. Like Germany is not a functional state in 1946. Right. So we rebuilt their institutions, and that's one of the big reasons the Marshall Plan, you know, is a massive success um, 1955, is that Germany's back on its feet, but it's not the military aristocracy of the Junkers that is in control of Germany, or at least Western Germany. It is a democratic federal republic of Germany under, um, 
it was a Colm, I can't remember his name, but uh, yeah, it's built in our image. Can we do the same thing for Mexico? Technically, yes, but it requires an outright invasion and the breaking of mm. Mexican society to do that. Can you make right. a Marshall Plan afterward? Yeah, but you got to do it the right way. You have to literally like full-on annexation a country or a full-on conquer a country. We haven't done that since 1945. And we're not going to. <laughs> I don't think so. But we, we've tried. We, I'm sorry. We we tried to go. do it with our, we tried to do it with Iraq, but we did it in like the most asinine way possible. But we also didn't look at the massive cultural religious differences, yeah. which we talked about in a few episodes back. Is that you know look we tried to do kind of a Marshall Plan too with Iraq, but we also didn't understand that we're dealing with people that are not part of a more European heritage. We're dealing with people that live in the Islamic acuta system, right? That is mm -hmm. semi-feudal to its own degree. Uh, we didn't go in and separate the balances of power and rewrite it in our image. We just basically gave people the framework, but we didn't actually pick winners and losers. And that's the big right. thing that you have to do. You have to pick winners and losers. And that is unfortunately what the West has gotten really terrible with um, mm. overall when it comes to far more heavy-handed approaches is that we're not willing to do that. And that means getting your hands dirty. So yeah, I, I agree with that. North Countryman, before we end, you were going to say something before I brought up my Marshall Plan comment. Do you do you want to expand upon that, or do you remember? It was important. It was. It was. It was a. It was a remark about uh, Tiberius becoming a revolutionary Marxist. I'm like, let's get him a beret <laughs> and have him look like Che Guevara. Do it. He's got the read the bread book. So. <laughs> I've got a copy somewhere, so. Uh, <laughs> I, we, I'm, I'm sure we all professor, have. I have a shit ton of books in here. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we all have books, but no, like there's, there's a level where I think everybody's right. Like I've literally got a positions across the entire political spectrum from, you know, like, off, you know, lib right, off right, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I can literally go around the circle. And this is actually where like the, the, the left tends to have a point is that if you don't have enough uh, people who are middle class, who are maintaining the, the status quo of what we would call a normal industrialized society, uh, all hell tends to break loose. Um, and we've not seen the, the advancement of labor rights. We've not seen the advancement of workers' rights. And we've not really seen the advancement of quote-unquote human rights in a lot of Latin America that would really preeminate uh, a higher standard of living and a higher level of prosperity for uh, these states. And that's a huge problem that's that's a very good point and i think that's a good point to end on that i am sad to say that we are actually out of time i know you like your heard because you stayed with us now so like i said smash that like button for your algorithms it really does help us out uh stick around for a little bit i'm going to try to find people that we can raid so if you know what that is stick around but as we always say at crowdsource politics keep your head up for the political storm <laughs>